Welcome to WHMP. Josh Silver in for Buzz and Bill on your lovely Thursday. Good to be here. Dan, I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited too. This is going to be fun. Yeah, Dan Dan Torres is actually cooler than both of them, and I always just want to be here with just him. We did the intro, I'm Not Missing You At All. For those of you who are over 40, you'll know the song. But I did miss the words, I know. Oh, but, I yeah. miss... Yeah. Because Bill is Bill Newman's under this illusion that we're going to all miss him. He, I, he, said, he sent me a note, something about the earth stopping on its axis with him being gone. Yeah, yeah that sounds about right. Yeah. It's it's delusional, but fortunately, we have somebody to bring him back down to earth. We're really lucky to start this uh, segment today with Carol Rose, the executive director of the Massachusetts ACLU. Uh, she's been there for over 20 years. Amazing. Uh, previously a journalist, a war reporter, a Harvard-trained lawyer, but don't let that hold you against her. She's She's really smart. Carol, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Now, um, it's an interesting it's an interesting moment in political uh, history in the United States, and we have a few things to cover. We're gonna we're gonna talk about digital uh, digital privacy. We're gonna talk a little bit uh, about the new gag order. Now, uh, the, the, of course, Trump got hit with a ten thousand dollar fine on top of a five thousand dollar fine that he had been hit with for violating a gag order. I think specifically making comments related to the staff of the court that is trying him in New York City. Um, the ACLU came out and essentially um, against the gag order. Uh, I, I, I trust a lot of people at ACLU are not big fans of the former president's other behaviors, but the gag order specifically uh, came under scrutiny from the ACLU. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, no modern day president has done more damage to civil liberties and civil rights than than former President Trump, um, and we've the ACLU has filed more than 400 legal actions against the Trump administration. But this isn't this issue is not about Trump. This is about the principle of free speech. Um, and if we allow this defendant's free speech rights to be abridged, that we know that other even more unpopular voices, even the ones that we might agree with also can be silenced. So if we're going to say that Donald Trump is not above the law, we also have to say that, like every other criminal defendant, he has a right to due process of that law. So this is about holding true to principles, even if we have to hold our nose while we hold to those principles. So I think the question that that all of our listeners, are, are most of them are, are, are wondering is, we know that there is this gray zone. We know it has to do with um, when people make violent threats, when people make um, dangerous statements, where there there is a place where a, a, a gag order or some sort of limits on free speech are appropriate, what are they? How do you how do you set that bar? And because the case that's being made against Trump is that his statements against court staffers and prosecutors is endangering their lives. Where's the line lie? Right. So what it's important to know is that the specifics of this particular gag order are just really vague and really broad. Like it's you can't criticize the prosecutor, Jack Smith, even though he's a public official. Um, you know, you can't talk about any issues of election integrity uh, that might arise in the 2024 presidential campaign. Um, you know, the, it, it's not that there can't be and certainly anything with regard to, you know, threats intimidation, those kinds of things. The court has a lot of leeway. Courts have a lot of leeway to be able to make sure that 
that doesn't happen um, in a case. But the way that this particular gag order is framed, it's just too broad and too vague, and it could set a precedent that could really undermine the rights of other people down the road. And that's what we're really looking to, is to make sure that the legal principle that's set is one that applies to everyone and that we won't change our mind and say, well, you can you can gag this guy because we don't like him, but you can't gag that person because we do like him. So the idea is to create and work with the court and to provide the court with some contours of what would be allowed and what wouldn't, and certainly threats, intimidation, and the like would be allowed. And that's not where our concern is. Interesting. So if from a legal point of view, and of course you are a lawyer, doesn't it seem sort of dumb on on the part of of the prosecutors in this case to to issue such a broad gag order? Wouldn't they know that this would be a problem, or do they feel like they could get away with it? And sure, the ACLU is going to oppose us, but there's there's upsides to doing a gag order against Donald Trump as broad as this, and so we're going to do it. Is is that if is that possibly the scenario? And if so. What would be the ra- the legal tactical rationale that they're using? Well, I mean, I think there's where we draw those lines, right? That's always up for debate, and I think it's certainly up for debate now. And in different states, they have been the lines have been drawn in different places. So I think what's happening here is we're we're using the courts as we should to try to create what is the agreed upon line of where we should do that. And we don't think it should be so broad to say you can't talk about a whole topic or you can't. Um, you know, talk about a, a person who's a public person, that's really different than threats and intimidation against, say, low-level staffers, right? So, I mean, we can we can figure out where to draw the line. We just think in this particular instance that it's just both too broad and too vague at once. And broadness and vagueness are things that make rules unconstitutional because then all of a sudden subjectivity comes in and we apply one set of rules to one person, another set to another. And what the ACLU is hoping to do is to help the court to find a rule that both protects due process for the defendant and protects everybody else and the process itself. Yeah, it's, it's um, these, are, these are hard questions, but the problem is we have to do the black box test, which is where would you want to draw the line if you were the defendant? Yeah. I mean, I, I just have to imagine that this, this is one of those kind of thorny issues that keeps any ACLU director awake at night sometimes, right? Which is when you look, when you back out the lens and you look objectively at a character like Donald Trump, who who really does feel like a Viktor Orban or a, or a Erdogan from Turkey, you know, Orban from Hungary, these sort of modern day autocrats who are a terrible, terrible danger to democracy and their unchecked power results in catastrophe for, for fragile democracies. So much of this is intertwined and so much of Donald Trump's behavior is, is dangerous and horrific. And, I, you know, it, it, it reminds me of the debate that comes up over and over again at the ACLU over the last many decades over campaign finance reform, right? Which is mm-hmm. a, a similar problem of figuring out where the line is. I'm a big campaign finance reform advocate. I believe in spending limits in political campaigns. Uh, the ACLU doesn't. The ACLU generally, and you feel free, of course, to correct me, but generally has taken the position that you should be able to spend any amount of money you want to because that's your your freedom and your right but what you know how what do you do when unchecked political spending in this case as opposed to Donald Trump saying you know threatening threatening things against staffers in a courtroom when unchecked political money completely corrupts the system to the point where it, it renders it un, un, unviable like what do you do then 
Right. Um, well, you know, first of all, I think that the ACLU's position on campaign finance reform is a lot more nuanced than what you just set forth. You know, at the time that the the big case came down, um, Citizens United, you know, the ACLU's objection in our amicus brief uh, to the court was that the rules would have prevented us from saying the candidate's name for 60 days before an election um, when doing issue campaigns. And that's just like a that's not a that's not a money thing. That's an actual speech problem. Um, and so just to be clear that our position was far more narrow and had to do with speech, not finance as such. Um, and, and we actually urged the court not to go further, but the court amazingly did not listen to us, did not listen to the ACLU. So I just want to make sure that your listeners know that the ACLU position isn't that you can't have any restrictions. In fact, you know, the ACLU supports public financing initiatives, so every candidate would have sure and equal footing to run for public office, um, greater transparency. Uh, we favor uh, disclosure rules. We favor reasonable limits on campaign contributions um, and heightened standards of separation between candidates and PACs and things like that. But I think we can adopt a lot of those rules without impinging on the First Amendment. Um, and so, you know, we're not necessarily on the same side as the people who say um, have total restrictions uh, and we're not on the same side as the people who say you can't have any restrictions. You know, once again, we're trying to help the courts and the society to, to build a bridge so that we don't violate um, free speech rules. You know, the problem when you do that is that it, it really gives an advantage to an incumbent Right, because if I'm an upstart that wants to maybe change things or challenge the way things have been done, um, and I'm not allowed to uh, to do that because there are restrictions, um, that can really give an advantage to incumbents. Um, and I think it's important for those of us who care about change and care about our society evolving and not necessarily having the same people in power forever and ever and ever. Um, there are trade-offs that we have to make. But I think it's possible to get there if we're willing to not see everything as so black and white, but rather to look for the third way where we can have reasonable restrictions, good disclosure rules, um, and those kinds of things. Um, and then the other thing is, I do think that money in politics is a problem and that there are things like public financing that can help get us there. But a lot of the money in politics isn't even just around elections. I mean, the amount of, uh, you know, pork barrel, if you would, that goes on, isn't even related necessarily to elections. It's just related to uh, doing deals. And I think it's important that we think about these issues, not just in terms of the narrow lens of campaign finance, but of money and politics more broadly. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think there is a there's another layer to that, though, Carol, which is that if you look at the ACLU before Citizens United and folks, uh, you know, Citizens United happened about 10 years ago roughly. And it, it, it essentially took off all of the chains. I mean, basically, it said that unlimited spending is allowed in politics as long as it's, um, I'm using air quotes right now, as long as it's spending by super PACs or independent entities that are independent of the campaigns themselves. And so now you have this mountain of cash flowing around politics by ostensibly independent so-called super PACs, uh, using uh, anonymous money that uh, is is working on behalf of a candidate, even though it technically uh, is not, and it's just gone completely out of control. Before Citizens United, however, ACLU did oppose a lot of what I believe were reasonable proposals to restrict candidate spending. And I, and I think we're going to go to the break in a second. We can come back to this. But I think what, what we look at is if you look at Europe, if you look at Scandinavia or Germany, where their policies are working much better than in the United States, 
but by an, through an ACLU lens, they are actually co- would be considered draconian. Uh, corporate lobbyists not even allowed in the German parliament. <laughs> They're not even allowed basically to step foot in there. Um, campaign, they can't make contributions to candidates. Can't, candidates cannot, uh, and in many instances, cannot spend private money. They only get, can spend money through their party. Um, it's, it's by ACLU standards draconian, and there is far less corruption in those governments than we have here. So there's this rub about the theoretical versus the practical. We have to take a break, uh, and we are going to come back with Carol Rose from the Massachusetts ACLU. I'm Josh Silver in for Bill and Buzz. We'll be right back. The election is around the corner, and it seems your campaign strategy has been to ramp up your divisive. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Art and history. Material objects that tell a story. Porcelain, silk, pearls. In Sally Wen Mao's new collection of poems, The Kingdom of Surfaces, these material objects of art frame an important conversation on beauty, empire, commodification, and violence. The Kingdom of Surfaces is a finalist for the Maya Angelou Book Prize. Broadside Bookshop presents author Sally Wen Mao reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces, tonight at 7 at the Edwards Church. Following her reading, Sally Wen Mao will join in a conversation with novelist and poet Ocean Wong. The reading is free and open to the public, but space is limited. So reserve your seat now at broadsidebooks.com. Sally Wen Mao, reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces, plus a conversation with Ocean Wong, tonight at 7 at the Edwards Church, presented by Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Let's experience fitness together. Hi, this is Jessica. And at Fitness Together, we offer personal trainers and customized workouts either in studio or virtually. Located in Northampton and Amherst, we're here to help you reach your goals, be it weight loss, recovery and rehab, improving health, or simply living well. Getting fit, you'll have the energy to do what you love. Visit us at Fitness Together, Amherst, or Northampton and become a part of our community today. Fitness Together, your journey to wellness starts with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Josh Silver in for Bill and Buzz. We have Carol Rose from the Massachusetts ACLU in. I had queued up an overly long question before the break. I'll just re, re uh, kind of cap it by saying, Carol, what do we do when the principles, the noble principles that are brought by organizations like the ACLU run up against the practical realities that sometimes restrictions like restrictions on corporate spending or restrictions on private spending in politics, as you see in places in Europe that result in governments that objectively have higher levels of integrity around these issues of quid pro quo, they run up against the principles of the ACLU in some instances. And how do we reconcile that? Yeah, so first, in response to your comment about Europe, you know, I think there are a lot of things that are different in Europe. I don't know that the ACLU has taken a position on European policies, um, but 
I do know that in Europe, um, we have a lot of issues of the rise of the far right there too, um, even though there are more restrictive efforts to restrict speech. You know, I think that there are a lot of things that we can do to help um, limit the impact of money on elections, separating uh, better disclosure laws, better separations for the independence between PACs and candidates um, and those kinds of things. But I think the bottom line is that it's not really helpful when you have a system where the government gets to decide what speech people get to hear uh, rather than the people being able to decide. And again, I think there's a danger of having so many restrictions that incumbents uh, can never be thrown out of office, that new ideas and new candidates don't have any ability to get in. So finding that way forward, I think is hard, but you know, the ACLU, um, there are a lot of things that the ACLU supports that we can do, and I'd be happy to have a whole session to talk about this. Uh, you know, it's not something that we're focused on at this moment. It's not one of our top priorities at the ACLU of Massachusetts. But I think that there are ways forward um, that aren't so starkly black and white. Yeah. Well, one of the issues that is a priority for you, I know, is voting rights. And thank Absolutely. you. Thank you for that. You're challenging voter suppression and gerrymandering um, and working to empower voters for their uh, rights at the ballot box. I'm curious if, if we could jump into gerrymandering a little bit because, okay. you know, we it's interesting. We had, a, and of course, gerrymandering is the process of politicians picking their voters instead of voters picking their politicians. And, you know, we're seeing it just happened in North Carolina this week where the legislature there came out with a new map that uh, has a, 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 a U.S. congressional delegation that's currently five and five, five Democrat, five De uh, Republican, it could right. it could go all the way to like two and eight or three and seven um, with the Republicans having the majority. There were some very encouraging ballot initiatives that passed uh, in the over the last 10 years that would create independent commissions that would help mitigate gerrymandering. And, and they did. We saw especially in places like Michigan um, and, and other states that have improved over the last uh, decade. But it does seem like we're starting to backslide uh, as a country once again, I think in part because the entire Republican Party has sort of turned against elections and democracy itself. What in that kind of hostile environment can be done? Yeah, well, there's a lot that can be done. And voting rights is the number one priority for the ACLU, uh, both here in Massachusetts and nationwide between now and the 2024 elections. Um, we have 17 active court cases um, around redistricting. Uh, and all of these cases are about ensuring fair maps and equal representation. And we've had some pretty big victories. I mean, notably, uh, the court really recently in Alabama in a case called Allen versus Milligan, uh, basically held that the Voting Rights Act allows race to be used in the redistricting process to provide equal opportunities so that communities of color uh, can have a right to vote and make sure that maps aren't drained drawn in a way that really weakens their voting strength. Um, we have other challenges in Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Mexico. And just a couple days ago, a few days ago, uh, we argued in the US Supreme Court, a case Alexander versus South Carolina NAACP. Um, and that case is about the South Carolina's legislature uh, was trying to create a racially gerrymandered congressional map that was going to deny black voters the equal opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice. Um, and so the ACLU took that case and it's going all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and what's interesting is that we're arguing it's kind of a novel legal argument that this map violates not just the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, but the 15th Amendment 
clause, which nobody ever talks about anymore, but it's, which prohibits denying voting rights to people on account of their race. Um, and so it, it's going to be a very interesting um, outcome uh, because I think it's going to impact all of those other 17 cases that we're arguing. So everyone should pay a lot of attention to this case coming out of uh, South Carolina, which is Alexander versus South Carolina NAACP, and that's an ACLU case. So Carol, um, if I, if here I, in Massachusetts, can I? I'll just interrupt to back out the lens. So, big picture, the Supreme Court has ruled, kind of infamously, in my view, that sure, mm-hmm. it's it's good that they 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 held that you can. Over, you can challenge successfully, theoretically, maps based on racism, based on tweaking the lines in order to benefit one race or the other. However, you may not challenge if the lines are tweaked in order to create partisan advantage, which to me is ludicrous that they don't do yeah. they don't do both. Am I am I to under, am I to understand that your many formidable challenges that you're describing, they are thus focused primarily on race? Yeah, because our challenge in the last term, which said you can't have partisan gerrymandering, was struck down. And they said, actually, you oh, can, but you can't have racially biased gerrymandering. So, you know, I mean, which is terrible. We I, we disagree. Obviously, we were on the other side. But I would submit that, you know, racial gerrymandering is a sufficiently widespread problem that we continue to fight on that level and that includes here in Massachusetts um you know what we just launched uh this year uh what we're calling BIPOC to the ballot which is a nonpartisan public education campaign to build voter awareness and engagement in cities and towns um, where we see black indigenous and people of color BIPOC communities who are not necessarily registered to vote um, or getting out to vote and so we are working with um, volunteers and canvassers and we're focusing on three communities Brockton, Pittsfield and Springfield uh, and so just by ex- way of example in Pittsfield and Springfield alone ACLU canvassers, we've had over 1,500 different conversations with voters just in the last two months. So we're thinking about municipal elections this year, but the goal is to really increase participation, uh, particularly in marginalized communities, of people getting to, registering and then getting out to vote with an eye toward the 2024 elections. It's really important that people exercise their franchise. Voting rights are the rights that underpin every other right that we uphold. And if we can get enough people to the ballot, to the voting box, that's what really matters, arguably even more than money. Yeah. We are talking to Carol Rose with the Massachusetts ACLU. We've only got a couple more minutes, Carol, but I do want to, and I want to thank you and recognize that the that your office is working um, against book bans. You're working on public health here in Massachusetts in important ways, protecting abortion rights. But with our last minute or two, so we're going to have to keep this tight. Digital sure. privacy is an issue you work on. Thank you. Because those of us who deep dive into this problem of digital misinformation and how it is driving the extremism that you referenced in Europe and in the United States, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, from a policymaking perspective, digital privacy laws, specifically ones that end up making it much more difficult for these big internet platforms like Facebook or Twitter to be able to segment audiences and and drive content to ideologically this or that uh, audience. Digital privacy is really important. What What are the opportunities in a minute or two for us to make progress on that? Well, I mean, I think the most 
uh, available thing that people can do now is to tell ask their representatives to support what we're calling the Location Shield Act. That's the Location Shield Act, which was filed by Representative Kate Lipper Garabedian and Senator Cindy Cream in the legislature. This bill would prohibit companies from engaging in predatory practices of selling our cell phone location data. Right, and so right now, uh, bad actors, and whether we're talking about people who are uh, bounty hunters trying to track you if you go to an abortion clinic, or domestic violence, you know, domestic violence abusers, um, or any number of people can just simply go and buy this data about us on our on our cell phones and track us wherever we go. Wow. So this would put some barriers on that, and it's probably the most important thing that we can do right now. Um, really quickly to protect all of our data location privacy because that tells so much about who we associate with, where we go, and it makes um, people who are coming to Massachusetts to seek uh, abortion care and miscarriage care even more vulnerable because with these laws in places like Texas where you have bounty hunters who can track you and get $10,000 to if they report you to the government, we want to make sure that there's a data location privacy shield here in Massachusetts. So we can talk more about all the other bills that we have pending on this, but I would say that right now the Location Shield Act is probably the most important thing that we can do in Massachusetts to protect our digital privacy. Carol Rose with the Massachusetts ACLU, thank you so much for being with us. Great. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. I'm Josh Silver in for Bill and Buzz. We'll be right back. If you don't like who's in there, vote them out. That's what election day is all about. The biggest gun we've got. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. More than 2,000 employees for MGM Springfield will receive back pay after the Attorney General's office found the casino guilty of labor law violations. MGM Springfield will have to pay more than $6.8 million in back wages and fines to the state for infractions that occurred during the casino's first year and a half in operation. According to the Attorney General's office, MGM management failed to pay overtime wages, delayed payments, did not provide paid sick time, withheld tips, and did not pay minimum wage to tipped employees. Employees began filing complaints with the Attorney General's office in October 2018, just weeks after MGM Springfield opened and the results of the investigation were made public this week. UMass Amherst students protested inside a campus administration building yesterday to support Palestinians under siege in Gaza. They called on Chancellor Javier Reyes and the campus administration to cut ties with the weapons manufacturer Raytheon and condemn violence by Israel against Palestinians. Raytheon was one of the top six employers for UMass students who graduated from the class of 2021. Student groups including the Arab Cultural Association, the Black Student Union, Center for Education Policy and Advocacy, and Students for Justice in Palestine organized the sit-in. Multiple people at the Red Rock Plaza in Southampton were taken to the hospital on Wednesday after inhaling carbon monoxide. Emergency responders were first called to the scene for what was originally thought to be sickness caused by fumes from epoxy, but first responders found that it was instead the potentially dangerous gas coming from a propane heater. You cannot see, smell, or taste carbon monoxide, but symptoms of exposure include headaches, dizziness, vomiting, chest pain, and confusion. No injuries were reported, but at least three people were taken to Bay State Medical Center with more severe symptoms. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work in active organic gardens. 
Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Hun, we need to stop putting off getting life insurance. I know. It's just been so busy, and I'm sure the cost is out of our budget. Well, Jen told me that they got a $500,000 term life insurance policy from Ethos for less than $23 a month. All online, with no complicated forms, and no medical exam. All they had to do was answer a few health questions. Wait, no medical exam and all online? I know, right? It's not easy to think about, but if something happened to you, James and I would be... Okay. I get it. Let's get a quote from Ethos right now. Wow, you were right. There's no medical exam. And Ethos makes the whole online process fast and easy. And look at these rates and coverage options. It's great protection and totally fits our budget. Ethos. They've removed all the barriers from getting coverage. Go to checkethos.com to get your free online quote. That's checkethos.com. Quote based on a healthy, non-smoking 30-year-old male with a 20-year term policy. Rates may vary. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Josh Silver in for Bill and Buzz with, I've got Dan Torres ably holding down the board as usual. Thank you, Dan. Next, next segment is dedicated to Northampton education schools, and they are important. We have two candidates for the Northampton School Committee, Aileen Davis and Damia Stewart. Uh, who are here in studio to talk about what is shaping up to be an interesting race. we got two weeks to go till the November 7th election day here in Northampton. And a lot of people scratch their heads and say, all right, okay, you got the President Trump and you got the governor and you got the state ledge and you've got the school committee. Like, why does this matter? And so what I want to start with is you are two people who have bent over backwards to in your case, Aileen, serve on the school committee. Mm-hmm. You're an incumbent as an at-large, meaning the entire city, you represent the entire city. Yep. Damia, you're busy. You're a successful professional. You're taking a lot of time out of your life to do this. It clearly matters. I'm going to start with Aileen. Okay. Like, why does this committee matter? What do you do? What is in play? Why does Why would it require or warrant this much energy and time from you? I think for me... Um... For all of us, I think public schools are where it's at. <clears throat> we um, touch so many people. It's an employer in town. We have our focus on policy and the budget, so that impacts the whole city. And well-educated children affect the whole city. And so we all have an interest in that. And any little piece that I can do to help in that yeah. is important. Damia, and I should say, you on the ballot, you are not Damia, you are... And Damian Stewart. And Damian Stewart. And Damian, who we generally call her Damia. Um, What's your answer? 
Well, to be honest, I didn't know much about the school committee until a couple of years ago. I had had a couple of friends who had served, um, parents who had been with me at Bridge Street School. And it wasn't until the pandemic and the last two superintendent hiring processes that it even really came on my radar as to how big the decisions were that the school committee makes. Um, you know, the budget is a huge part of it. The budget is a significant part of the city's overall budget. So I don't know if a lot of people even know that, where, you know, of a budget of about, you know, I'll just do rough numbers of 135 million of the city budget, about, you know, 40 million goes to the schools. And, you know, then you have to factor in retirement pieces. You know, there are a lot of different components to this budget. And so, then in looking at the hiring processes for the superintendent, which that person sets the tone for the entire school system, um, you know, there's a lot of communication that could happen. And so as I started digging in deeper, I just felt like there were a lot of issues that could use a little bit of improvement. And so I started to see where I could fit in and where I could bring my strengths to the committee. That's great. Uh, and I should have mentioned Damia Stewart is running for Ward 4, which is uh, the south side of town that stretches off to the west. Aileen Davis is uh, is citywide. Aileen, you've been serving on the committee for how many years? Well, coming up, finishing the second year. Second year. Yep. So you've seen it at, uh, yes. up close. What do you see as the most challenging, thorny issues facing the committee today? Well, yet again, budget um, is going to come up. Um, and I would say the fact that we have a new superintendent and we've had lots of turnover of new administrators. And I think that uh, I know that a huge part of our job on the school committee is um, – is supervising the superintendent and supporting whoever that is um, so that they can better support their administrators and the teachers and the, therefore the schools. Like that's how, that's our role um, and the budget and policy. So I think that those two things are huge. I, I've gotten quite a number of questions about, still <clears throat> about health concerns and the pandemic and what happens if that reemerges. Um, so that, that's still on some people's minds mm -hmm. as an issue. And so um, making sure that the schools are healthy places to be, I think is what we can help. Yeah, we can make an impact with policy as well. And Damia, and, and, and you guys are going to, you're going to notice a, a, a pattern here. This, this first half of our segment, because we're going to take a break in about five minutes, is I want to talk about sort of what, what are the problems that you're seeing that, that are, are sort of nagging at you? And then after the break, I want to talk mm -hmm. about your vision for like things that we could do to make it better, the okay. improvements we mm -hmm. could see in the system. Damia, what are some of the problem areas that you saw as an, and I think you have an interesting perspective like us, like from the outside what were you seeing that helped motivate you to run? Yeah, it's interesting because I saw a few things. And then as soon as I got my name onto the ballot, people started emailing me with the things that they were seeing. And so I want to make sure that I also represent that. Um, the things that I was seeing were that there wasn't a lot of um, consensus building among the committee members. Um, you know, I was disappointed that 
We weren't giving the opportunity in the superintendent hiring processes to add racial diversity to our community. Um, I think that the budget, a lot of times the cuts are looking at special education. And I know that parents with children with disabilities are really concerned about this. I mean, these are kids that need the most support in our system. And, and to cut the budget just means that they're like going to potentially fall farther and farther behind or get less and less support. Um, I think in general in the schools, you know, mental health is the thing that comes up like with kids of every age. The pandemic made it worse for everybody. And I think that those needs haven't fully been addressed. We still don't know, you know, what the repercussions are from the pandemic and how this will affect these kids long term. Um, there's still bullying in our schools. There's sexual harassment. There is racism. I mean, there are things that we think that we don't experience here because we live in this bubble of Northampton, but these are real issues. And I think that we have the opportunity because we are such uh, like welcoming and caring community that we can act as a role model. And I feel like that that's you know, to to be able to take all of the issues and problem solve for all of them in a really cohesive way. I mean, I think that's that's the thing that the school committee can try to aspire to. Yeah, I have a question that that I'm I'm curious about for your personal take, as much as for your policy take. It's well documented that before the pandemic, uh, phones and screens and social media specifically was and is driving up anxiety, uh, body image issues, particularly in young girls, uh, eating disorders. It's it's rampant. Suicide. I mean, it's, it's really scary when you look at the side-by-side -side of the emergence of phones, social media, and these, these disorders and challenges for kids. There are some school districts like in Holyoke where they require that when you walk in a classroom, you put your phone in a basket. And you can't have a phone on you when you're in a class. Is are are, are items like that under discussion or something worth contemplating? Um, I happen to know <laughs> that at the last school committee meeting, um, we have um, wonderful representatives from Northampton High School that come and report. Um, and that was something that was mentioned. Um, that policy has ebbed and flowed, depending on who the principal was, I think. And currently being enforced now, starting this year, when kids walk in, this is at least at the high school. Mm -hmm. I, I don't actually know what is happening at JFK. Um, there's like a little chew yeah. holder yep. thing that you put your phone in when you walk in, and you can get it when you go out. Yeah. So... Um, it's so important. This issue I, I is so important. We are sitting here with <clears throat> Aileen Davis, who's running at large for the school committee of Northampton and and Damien Stewart for Ward 4, talking about education, the school committee race, November 7th election, important. I'm Josh Silver in for Bill and Buzz, and we'll be right back.
Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Get ready for an action-packed homecoming weekend at UMass. Join us for two thrilling games in Amherst starting Friday, November 3rd, as UMass Hockey takes on the Northeastern Huskies. Puck drop is set for 7.30. The weekend fun continues Saturday, November 4th, as Massachusetts football hosts Merrimack. Tailgating on Saturday, November 4th, starts at 11.30 a.m. and kickoff is set for 3.30. Rally up your friends, family, and classmates and return to campus. Get your tickets now by visiting umassathletics.com slash tickets. You were. You are. UMass. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. Josh Silver in for Buzz and Bill and Talk the Talk. Dan, I don't know this Talk the Talk. Could they have come up with something like a little more? <laughs> yeah, they could have. Talk the yeah, Talk? I, <laughs> wow. I, I didn't come up with the name, but that's the one we all agreed to. Yeah, it's like Burger King. I mean, <laughs> really? That's it? That's all you got? Dan, uh, during the break, we were just sitting around chatting, and Dan asked a great question. You'll say it better than me, Dan. Um, okay, so I was just watching this video on CNN, and it was a bunch of teachers on TikTok talking about the pandemic loss. They have noticed that a lot of students who are, let's say, in the seventh or eighth grade uh, have uh, math and reading scores that are like in the third grade or the fourth grade. So I heard a lot about bullying and how the pandemic has affected mental health. Can you also talk about uh, academic achievements and, and kind of gaps that we're seeing? Should I go first? Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, one thing I, I will... Uh, add into there is that I'm also an, I'm an elementary school teacher. So I, myself, I teach second grade in another district, so I can't speak to the seventh grade directly. Um, I will say one thing that I see in addition to academic mm, delays or whatever it might be, just drops in scores is, is, um, shortfalls. Thank you. Good word is, um, uh, some immaturity, lack of uh, uh, social skills. And I think that with the telephones, the telephones, I'm so old, the, the phones um, that we talked about too, um, uh, 
I think that that's made an impact. But one thing I will say that may be somewhat controversial is that during the pandemic, as a teacher, I was hearing a lot about the learning loss and what are we going to do. I think some people were more impacted that uh, with that than others. Kids that didn't have Wi-Fi, kids that had to babysit, kids that had to have their take a job and miss class and things like that, uh, rural students, things like that. Um, but also some teachers said we're all in the same place. Maybe we don't have to see it as a loss. Like let's take them where they are and catch them up. It's like a different way of seeing it, but it is dramatic. And I think some people are worse off than others. And Damien? Yeah, I think Aileen is right that the pandemic made any problems that already existed worse. And there are some kids who just don't have the same type of support at home. I mean, I was a kid who was raised by a single mother. She worked nights. I definitely didn't have someone to help with my homework. I mean, we didn't have Wi-Fi back then, but there are so many students who don't have access to broadband. Um, We worked on a report for the Alliance for Digital Equity and people were surveyed throughout the Valley about different issues with the pandemic. I mean, there were parents who had children in cars so that they could catch the Wi-Fi from, you know, in parking lots from nearby restaurants and stores that had it available. I think that the learning loss is something that that does have to be measured. I think that we have to figure out, you know, where it is, is it greater for some students than others, which I'm sure it is, mm-hmm. and then how do we help people catch up? And, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that, you know, like what the solution is, but I do think it's something that needs to be examined. Well, Josh, if I, this is Dan, I just wanted to mention from what I heard from both of you is, is sort of not just about academic loss, it's like maturity, social development, emotional, emotional yeah. development, yeah. social, yeah. emotional yeah. development. It seems like that also got impacted in the sure. pandemic. Sure. And so I, I'm sure that's, that's going to have lingering effects. If, if, you know, they go on to the next grades and grades on, they haven't caught up unless we make some sort of intervention. Yeah. No, or it's expansion. True. Yeah. no, it's yeah. true. So, so yeah, I, I think that it, that is absolutely true. And I, I think one of the undercurrents here that I'll just name is that There are very uh, legitimate critiques of standardized testing, but we should not confuse that with what Damia is talking about, I think, which is just get measuring and understanding where kids are mm-hmm. and that we shouldn't conflate those two. They're very different and you can measure where people are, where the kids are without having to go the full Monty on standardized testing, which has its downsides. Now, I want to move on to another topic, which is, you know, we're sitting here with Aileen Davis, an at-large candidate for school committee for the November 7th election. Everybody be sure to go out and vote, please. Um, and, and Damien, or also known as Damia Stewart, who's running for Ward 4, We've talked about some of the ailments that 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 plague our our school system and and many others, but I want to talk about your visions in terms of and I know they're interrelated, obviously, but they're not going to always exactly match. So I'm I'm just curious, like when you know Aileen, you made a decision to run mm-hmm. again, yes. and you're an incumbent uh, for the the, the at large. Uh, you and Gwen Agna, I believe, are mm-hmm. the two incumbent candidates for the at large position. Yes. Um, you had to have decided to run again because you want to accomplish some important things. What are they? Mm. Well, one of the things that I knew but is really 
gelled in my mind is a better understanding of what the school committee actually does as opposed to I'm going to fix the schools by me, the queen, go in there and fix it. We work as a group. And um, so one of my visions for running again is that we can become a more collaborative, positive, moving forward committee mm-hmm. to serve the students and the teachers and administrators better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to be a part of that. Is the subtext to that that do you feel like that some members have had too much of like, this is my agenda and I'm going to ram it through? I mean, is that something you've been dealing uh, with? Um, I, I would say so. And I would say that I, I, I get it because many of us are our parents or were parents on the school committee. So like intellectually, emotionally, I understand that if we see a problem in the schools, it maybe it affects us personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. Like you have to have a bigger vision for all the children from the, you know, little ones all the way through the high school. Um, Special education students, even if you don't have one, uh, you know, AP high school kids, even if you don't have one, what, you know, what can we see? Um, I, I think that we need to promote Northampton schools as great places to be, um, have confidence in us and the teachers. I want to do all we can to support the teachers so that they stay. Yeah. And that they, um, um, one thing that I've said, I want to make sure um, Damie has time, is that um, that um, everybody knows and acknowledges the wonderful resources that we have in the educators that we have in Northampton. And that I've said a few times is that all my three kids are very different kind of learners so I've experienced what's it like to be in a special ed meeting. I've experienced right. having a jock and an artistic kid who wouldn't have come to school if the chorus wasn't great yeah. and the theater wasn't great. And we need to fund those things as well in the budget. Yeah. Damien. Yeah, I think Aileen is, is totally right on about making sure that we are supporting all students, whether you know, Northampton High School just had a student who got a perfect score, the only person in the world who got a perfect score on the AP Physics 3 exam. Um, But I also know a student who lost a lot of her ability for speech during the pandemic because she has Down syndrome. And so I think making sure that all along that spectrum, we're supporting all of the students and not just, you know, our particular interest. In terms of having a really collaborative school committee, I think communication is the key to that. And I think the communication has to happen in in a few different ways. There has to be really good internal communication. I would encourage anyone who's new to the school committee on the fence about who to vote for, watch a meeting, watch a couple (laughs) of meetings in fast motion on YouTube. They're a slog, but um, I think that the committee has to be working really well together in a very respectful and proactive way that allows things to move forward. I think that there needs to be better outward communication so that people really understand like 
what the school committee does, what are the important decisions that are coming up. I think even on the school level, you know, like every year there's a new software system and it's very hard to know, like there's a day off, there's not a day off. The grading system is changing. But then also inward communication where people know that they can come to us with their issues and that they really feel comfortable coming to us with their issues, that we feel very accessible to people because there are multiple levels that you can go to. Um, so <laughs> I'm well, getting are, the finger are, to wrap we, it up. We are running out of time. We, we have been talking to Aileen Davis and, and Damien Stewart running for the school committee in Northampton. The vote is on November 7th. And I will say, I've got 10 seconds. I'll use the floor. Shorter school committee meetings would be yes, great. Indeed, I mean, indeed. You'll get better people and everyone agrees. There's no reason for a four or five hour meeting. I want to thank you both for coming in. Oh, thank, thank you, you, so, you much. so much. I'm Josh Silver in for Bill and Buzz and we'll be right back. I didn't think it was possible for me to be an alcoholic. I was 24 with a good career. I thought that alcoholism only happened to middle-aged men and celebrities. I thought something else was making me sick, shaky, and afraid to face people. Then I found AA and discovered it wasn't something else. It was alcohol. AA helped me find a new life. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit Western Mass AA. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez, manhunt for a mass shooter in Maine. We're all determined. That's determined to, to locate the suspect. Police say they're looking for a 40-year-old man named Robert Card after at least 16 people were killed at a restaurant and at a bowling alley north of Portland last night. Correspondent Elaine Quijano has details from Lewiston. According to a Maine law enforcement bulletin seen by CBS News, Card is a trained firearms instructor believed to be in the Army Reserve. He recently reported mental health issues and threatened to shoot up the National Guard base there. He was committed to a facility for two weeks over the summer. There were children bowling in a youth league at spare time recreation last night. This man was there too. I just booked it down the lane and I slid basically into where the pins are and climbed up in the machine and was on top of the machines for about 10 minutes until the cops got there. Police in Lewiston, Auburn and Lisbon are being told to stay home and lock their doors. President Biden has just ordered flags lowered in honor of the victims of what he calls a senseless shooting. Just in from Mexico, the government there says at least 27 people are dead, four missing after a powerful Category 5 Hurricane Otis hit Acapulco yesterday. 
knocking out power and internet service, leaving the city covered in mud and debris. And it's turned into a free-for-all at local stores. <laughs> National Guard officers have been allowing thousands of people to help themselves to food, toilet paper, diapers, and whatever else they can pile into their shopping carts. Despite higher prices, despite rising interest rates and forecasts of a recession, the U.S. economy grew at a better-than-expected annual rate of 4.9% in the third quarter. CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger predicts all of that consumer spending will slow down soon. Remember, this is now the period where student loans are going to be repaid, and also consumers have whittled down their excess savings. Hyundai and Kia are stepping up efforts to update cars to make them harder to steal. WWJ's Jeff Gilbert. The two Korean brands holding mobile clinics in several cities to put in a software update for vehicles that are at high risk of theft due to a social media challenge. The update has been available for a while, but it's required a visit to a dealer. Many cities have sued to recoup the cost of dealing with the additional thefts. Get ready for the Beatles, the AI version. Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr have just announced a song called Now and Then, first written and sung by John Lennon, will be released a week from today. They say it's emotional. The Dow, up 26. This is CBS News. If you need to hire, you need Indeed, because Indeed's all-in-one hiring solution helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Texting enrolls you into reoccurring automated text messages. Consent not required to purchase. Message and data rates may apply. Hey, Dan, how you doing? Haven't seen you around the gym for a while. Yeah, I've really fallen off. Since I turned 40, I just don't get the results I used to get. Could be lower testosterone. Lower T. Yeah, I went through it a while back. Once you hit 40, your body has less free testosterone. I got Nugenics Total T, and it's made a huge difference for me. I've seen that ad on TV. Is it for real? Oh, yeah. The patented key ingredient is something called Testafin, which helps boost free and total testosterone levels to help you trim up and stay lean. And it's made a difference for you? Man, I feel like I'm in my 20s again at work, in the gym, and in the bedroom. Are they still giving out complimentary bottles for people to try it for themselves? Yeah, you just need to send them a text. Text order to 42424 right now for your complimentary bottle of Nugenics Total Tea, the number one selling testosterone booster at GNC. Plus, text now and we'll include a bottle of Nugenics Thermo, our most powerful fat incinerator ever to help you get back into shape fast, absolutely free. Text O-R-D-E-R to 42424. That's order to 42 42- For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. More than 2,000 employees for MJM Springfield will receive back pay after the Attorney General's office found the casino guilty of labor law violations. MJM Springfield will have to pay more than $6.8 million in back wages and fines to the state for infractions that occurred during the casino's first year and a half in operation. According to the Attorney General's office, MGM management failed to pay overtime wages, delayed payments, did not provide paid sick time, withheld tips, and did not pay minimum wage to tipped employees. Employees began filing complaints with the Attorney General's office in October 2018, just weeks after MGM Springfield opened, and the results of the investigation were made public this week. UMass Amherst students protested inside a campus administration building yesterday to support Palestinians under siege in Gaza. They called on Chancellor Javier Reyes and the campus administration to cut ties with the weapons manufacturer Raytheon and condemn violence by Israel against Palestinians. Raytheon was one of the top six employers for UMass students who graduated from the class of 2021. Student groups including the Arab Cultural Association, the Black Student Union, Center for Education Policy and Advocacy, and Students for Justice in Palestine organized the sit-in. 
Multiple people at the Red Rock Plaza in Southampton were taken to the hospital on Wednesday after inhaling carbon monoxide. Emergency responders were first called to the scene for what was originally thought to be sickness caused by fumes from epoxy, but first responders found that it was instead the potentially dangerous gas coming from a propane heater. You cannot see, smell, or taste carbon monoxide, but symptoms of exposure include headaches, dizziness, vomiting, chest pain, and confusion. No injuries were reported, but at least three people were taken to Bay State Medical Center with more severe symptoms. Welcome back, Josh Silver, in for Bill and Buzz. Uh, I can I can tell just from chatting with Brian Adams, who's about to host the next segment of the show, uh, he's not missing Bill and Buzz either. Never, no, never, never. Bill uh, Brian Adams is the science and sensibility host, uh, professor emeritus from of environmental science at GCC. He's got a great guest today. Brian, what do you got? Uh, well, let me let me rephrase my not missing uh, Bill and Buzz. I miss them terribly. I'm mourning the fact that they are not here. The fact that I'm not going to be interrupted incessantly in my questions, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not missing. But there it goes. All right, listeners, I have a quiz for you. Here is my question. Ready? Put on your thinking caps, listeners out there. What do Sarah Willie LeBreton, geothermal, and 127 acres of Arboretum refer to in Hampshire County? Uh, Josh, are you listening? Do you, what, 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 what do you think? What's the answer? I don't know. <laughs> oh, Dan, what do you think? Uh, I actually don't pay any attention to what you're actually oh saying. Oh, my golly, so listeners. I, I'm actually running the board, and I have other things to do. Listeners, so. you are much more astute than that. You all know, of course, we're referring to Smith College in Northampton, a new president. We are welcoming her with open arms, Sarah Willie LeBreton. Uh, Smith undertaking a huge geothermal project. Um, working toward carbon neutrality by the year 2030, heating and cooling buildings with an enormous geothermal project. We might have a chance to talk about that in a little bit. And if you've never gone to Smith, you must do that. Homework for all of the listeners. Head to Smith, 127 beautiful acres of the campus. And we are so fortunate today to welcome the inauguration of the new president, not with the president, but with the landscape curator, uh, who runs all of these outdoor managed gardens, John Berryhill from Smith College. John, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. Good morning. So, again, listeners, you've got to get to Smith. It is just a remarkable, you know, beautiful buildings, but even maybe more so for me anyway, is the beautiful botanical gardens that are out there. And so pleased to have the landscape curator with us today. I want to start, uh, John, with this idea that botanical gardens really serve as living laboratories out there. They're not just for the eye, for beauty, but they are really uh, uh, ways that, that uh, provide incredible learning and research experiences for Smith College. Can you talk about some of the ways that the botanical gardens that you help manage serve as these living laboratories? Sure, yeah, we're, we're lucky. I know I speak for all my colleagues when I say that um, we feel... Um, honored and, and grateful to be part of this uh, long chain of stewardship of those teaching collections that uh, the Botanic Garden has become 
this cherished legacy that's really part of Smith's identity. Uh, we were really groundbreakers from the start in 1895. Smith's first president, President Seeley, had an idea that I'd been here for 10 years uh, when I learned that this idea that we have at Smith and now at so many colleges and, and university campuses around the world of an integrated botanic garden that you would have a scientifically curated collection, a teaching collection, integrated into the campus landscape aesthetic. That got its start at Smith, um, which surprised me. It surprises a lot of people to hear it because it seems like such a natural fit at any college or university, particularly a liberal arts one where you're in, we um, explore those intersectional spaces. And um, so that was very much part of, you know, the, the Botanic Gardens mission from the start was to, to support academics, to support pedagogy at the college. And we're really excited that we're at an exciting moment to, to rethink what that means um, as conversations in the Botanic Garden community and the biological sciences community about what botanical stewardship looks like, what learning is important at the moment has changed from what it was in 1895. You mentioned before the show that um, you've been at Smith for over a quarter of a century, over 25 yeah. years, and never have you been more excited yeah. about being at Smith. Yeah. Why is that? What is it generating this enthusiasm and excitement? Yeah. So you're like a new kid on the block. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, part, part of it's being in the position I'm, I'm in now and being able to work with the, with the team of gardeners and arborists and, and other colleagues that I have at, at the college. But um I would say that that energy was really turned into a, to a, a new gear about uh, five years ago. We, we crafted our first ever strategic plan, which was modeled after the college's strategic plan. And it was really exciting to build a set of strategic priorities for our team, for engagement with the student body, engagement with our audiences, for reflecting the values of the college, and that that really harmonized well with what the botanic garden community is doing at the moment, really moving away from the older, just uh, sort of a static reference collection model. I think we, um, some folks, I'm sure a lot of the listeners know about the botanic garden of Smith College and hopefully have been to other botanic gardens as well. Um, if you couldn't define one, I think a lot of people think of it as sort of a museum of plants. So for recreation and learning and, um, I think for much of our history, we existed much in the way that museums and zoos and libraries did to these sort of static collections of stuff, thinking of our collections as being populated with collectibles. And I think all of those institutions I mentioned, along with Botanic Gardens, are starting to rethink the purpose of our work, to ask what are the really salient and important questions of the moment that pertain to our collections. And in the case of Botanic Gardens, not viewing them as items that serve our need, but rather asking ourselves what does, as um, famous author and professor Robin Wall Kimmerer, who we were very fortunate to be able to host uh, last February at the college, always speaks of um, the theme of reciprocity with the botanical world being so central to so many indigenous cultures, and what does that look like as a steward of teaching collections? And, so, so, so what does it look like, a steward? I mean, how are you moving away from this traditional museum-like quality of a garden into something more vibrant and diverse, not just for yeah. plants, but for people as well, right? 
What are some of the steps that you're taking? Well, it's thinking specifically about what that diversity means. I think it used to mean this sort of stamp collecting model of one of these, one of those, and I think you would measure the value of a collection by its breadth. How many things do we have in it, and how rare are they? What do we have that the Botanic Garden over there or the Arboretum over there? I should mention an Arboretum, for folks that don't know, it's just a, a Botanic Garden that focuses on woody plants and shrubs and, and woody vines. Um, think of it as just focused primarily on trees, but... Uh, Diversity can mean that, or it can be thinking specifically, rather than viewing those plants as items, as representatives, as essential representatives of diverse living communities, thinking of them as alive, which they are. And when we when we think of it that way, we can start to think about what are the needs, not what can plants do for a collector, but what can a collector do for plants. We've been able to engage with the state botanist, Bob Wernerell, just recently on some um, conservation work with an endangered hawthorn species, a single-site endemic. We've been able to really dig in on this um, conservation project with mountain magnolia, which most folks haven't heard of. It's an endemic to the Southern Appalachian Mountains. What does endemic mean? Oh, yeah, great. Uh, It means its it's natural range is confined to a specific area. So in this case, it occurs naturally only in the Southern Appalachian Mountains of the U.S. Mm. You've worked a lot with some of the big trees at Smith. And if you haven't been to Smith, again, listeners, get there because there's some gorgeous, really, you know, uh, enormous big trees. Can you talk about some of those? And do you have a favorite... Big tree. Uh, you know, That's I get that a, question a lot, as you I might imagine. You yeah, so um, we're we're lucky from from the start. Our that campus is that integrated model I described. Um, the aesthetic side of it was designed by the Olmsted firm. Uh, Frederick, uh, excuse me, Frederick Law Olmsted was sort of the father of the field of landscape architecture. And what sort of I think of as typifying a Olmstedian landscape is is the big picture. That Olm- the, Olmsted who did uh, Central Park. Central in, Park, correct. Yeah, and, and a number of other sort of famous yeah. American landscapes. Um, so we're very fortunate for that. But uh, again, the, the idea that the, the elements that make up the, um, the whole – are, are subordinate to the big picture, and the big picture is characterized more than anything else by large trees. And we're lucky that we have, I should say, 14 state champion trees. 14? I should say 14 and, and counting, because we have some nominees that haven't been assessed by the state. Uh, the state's in the process of re, um, rebuilding and um, fortifying, organizing the, the state champion tree list. It was something that kind of got lost a little bit over the years. And um, one of our, our arboriculture intern, Tess Naki, met with um, representatives from the Department of Conservation Resources to bring out. And we knew we had several state champions, but we, we added to that list significantly. When I say a state champion, too, I should, I should clarify what that is. It's the largest of a species in a particular area, in this case, of course, the state. And that's measured by combining three elements of size that the human eye usually is drawn to, the stem diameter, the height of a tree, and the average crown spread. Wow. And what are some of those champions at Smith College? Sure. Some of the more the more famous ones, we have the, the state champion ginkgo biloba tree just south of the Lyman Plant House. And that's the one that drops all of its leaves in like one second or something? Yeah, in one one day day it can lose the majority of its trees. It depends a little bit on what cues it's getting from the the environment. Last year was a particularly nice year. And... um, but it's this really amazing ancient lineage of trees. 
and uh, this was one of the this is one of the biggest in the country, and and certainly wow. the biggest in the state. Right next to it is the largest Japanese umbrella pine in the state. Japanese umbrella pine. Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, interesting. If you, if you look at the two together, the the ginkgo, which is a broadleaf tree, and the Japanese umbrella pine, which is a conifer, as, as the name suggests, although it's not a true pine. Uh, are genetically akin to each other. They're, they're both these really ancient lineages that uh, used to be parts of diverse, really diverse groups of plants, the ginkgos and the, the umbrella pines, and they're just being represented by these sole survivors. There are only three of the 60,000 species of trees on earth, approximately, there's only three of them that are the only species in their genus and the only genus in the family. That's only true when you have these really ancient wow. lineages. And the ginkgo yeah, is one of the those? The ginkgo is one. The Japanese umbrella pine is the other. The oh third, if you go to the other side of the plant house, you'll find a hardy rubber tree, Eucomia olmoides, which is, as you can walk 100 yards and see all three of those trees. And really, a, hard, a hardy rubber? Yes, yeah. Wow. And it can and, grow, I think of that as a tropical thing or... Yeah, well, most of the, uh, well, the, the, the um, brevia, the, the, the tree we get latex from is, is indeed a tropical and, tree. And we have that in the plant house, I should point out. And do we get our medication from ginkgo galoba from that tree as well? Uh, we actually do? don't. And it's an interesting <laughs> question because uh, that, that usually comes from the, the seeds of it. And ginkgo is one of the uh, types of trees that, that bears pollen-bearing uh, pollen-bearing trees and fruit-bearing trees are occur on separate individuals. And the, f the I won't say the fruit because conifers don't have true fruits, but the seed coating of uh, seed-bearing or seed-bearing trees, they smell really bad as they rot and ferment on the ground. So you usually want that pollen-bearing, which is the one we have. So we, we don't use that one. But yeah, so it, also the um, the Dawn Redwood behind the... Right. They're all uh, clustered together. Yeah, they? yeah. There's yeah. some really, really big trees. You would think that Smith College is the perfect place for plants to grow really big. The soil must be magic or something like that must be happening, and not, not, nothing could be further from the truth. It really comes down to the stewardship of the arboriculture teams over the... Which is what you are responsible for, Josh. We're going to yeah. take a quick break. We've got Brian Adams with Science and Sensibility. I'm Josh Silverin for Bill and Buzz, and we will be right back. A chance to share old memories and play our songs again. When I got to the garden party, they all knew my name. No one recognized me. I didn't look. But it's all right now. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP.
From pumpkin spice to apple pie, fall is hands down the most delicious time of the year, but it's also the busiest. Get HelloFresh and treat yourself to the best of the season's flavors without the stress. HelloFresh does the shopping and planning for you so you can relax. Not only do their chefs create fall-perfect recipes to enjoy, all the ingredients arrive fresh and pre-portioned, so whipping up a home-cooked meal is easy. And make sure to check out the fall flavors, a new limited-time lineup of easy autumn-inspired eats from HelloFresh Market. Feast on desserts like apple cider cake with caramel sauce, or please a crowd with appetizers like the barbecue pulled pork nachos. And just as always, everything you need to get cooking quick is delivered right to your door. How easy is that? Join America's number one meal kit today and get 50% off plus free shipping with the code 50ARMSTRONG at HelloFresh.com slash 50ARMSTRONG. That's code 50ARMSTRONG at HelloFresh.com slash 50ARMSTRONG. You can cancel it any time if you're not thrilled, but you will be. Code 50ARMSTRONG at HelloFresh.com slash 50ARMSTRONG. At Simply Safe, our award-winning home security has advanced sensors, HD cameras, and now this 24/7 lifeguard protection. Only from Simply Safe, monitoring agents can see and speak to intruders through our indoor camera to help stop crime in real time and for fast police response. Now get 45% off any new system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/radio. Advanced home security, 24/7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. There's no safe like Simply Safe. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Josh Silver in for Buzz and Bill. Brian Adams here with Science and Sensibility. The next topic, Brian, I got the spoiler, is going to be about native and non-native species. My sister's an ornithologist and her husband, and she will go out sometimes. And literally, they will shoot non-native birds that are taking over nests of native birds and it is something that is not really frowned upon in the in the wildlife preservation circles my golly but ornithologists killing birds yeah uh, yeah 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 these are sparrows i believe it's an important issue japanese knotweed everywhere what do we got what's 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 happening well it is it's a really interesting issue um what is it one what is native and what is non-native before the show we're talking about honeybees honeybees been here for 400 years yet they are a non-native uh, species and uh, we're talking with John Berryhill. John is the landscape curator at Smith College. He manages the outdoor botanical garden. Someone else does the indoor greenhouse. And John, this sort of tension between native species and non-native species—you have a huge amount of non-native species on campus. And now, you know, the buzzword among landscape folks is "ah, oh, plant native, plant native, get away from the non-native, shoot the non-native birds." Yeah. No. No, I'm, I'm actually maybe not kidding about that. Yeah. Um, so, so talk about this, you know, what is native, what isn't, and what is your role in sort of promoting native species? Yeah, it's, it's a much bigger and more complicated topic than it seems like it would be. Um, you know, going back to, the, to when we started and, and 20th Century Botanic Gardens building these reference collections for learning, it was certainly a point of emphasis to get the plant that maybe people hadn't seen before. So there was this drive to, you know, certainly in New England, go to places like East Asia that had tremendous botanical diversity that would also grow in outdoor gardens in the U.S. and Europe. And in many cases, that was harmless. It, it should, it, it's a topic that calls for nuanced conversation, but there's definitely widespread agreement that there needs to be an emphasis on native plants. And before I go further, I'll 
mentioned there, native can mean different things. Sometimes people use a geographic definition, meaning it's you know something that naturally occurs in Northampton or in Massachusetts. And or sometimes you add a temporal aspect to that or something that was native sort of, sort of pre-colonization. And when you tie it to a map, there, there's something artificial there and something meaningless. And actually the, the definition that I like to go to um, comes from a researcher Doug, and author, Doug Tallamy, who comes from the entomology world. That's the study of insects. And you can't really be an entomologist without being a plant person and, and vice versa. And I'm going to paraphrase a definition that I think comes from his book, Bringing Nature Home, which I can't re recommend enough if any of what we're talking about resonates with you. It's something to the effect of a species is native to an area when it has lived there long enough to develop complex and essential relationships with the other living things in that ecosystem. Well, that's a really interesting definition. It is. And yeah, it really redefines native it, species. And it tells it? you why it's important at the same time. In addition to defining it, it adds a sense of why it matters, um, that these aren't just things. These are living things that interact with other living things. And when we think about those interactions in the plant world, often our minds sort of just go to the pollinators. And when we think about pollinators, unfortunately, our minds just go to honeybees, as you just mentioned, and monarch butterflies, and not that they aren't important, but uh, honeybees actually aren't native, which surprises a lot of people. And monarch butterflies, although important, perhaps draw a little too much, a disproportionate amount of our energy just because of their natural beauty and the, the interesting story about their long migration and such, and that there are other smaller wasps and bees and flies and moths. And uh, also things outside of the entomological world that really matter, including the fungal world and the bacterial world that are co-evolved with our native flora. And um, botanic gardens and home gardeners are starting to really understand the value of uh, planting native. And I think it was Doug Tallamy, too, that also put forth the suggestion not to go, you have to go 100% native, but a good target is that the biomass in your planted landscape is 70% native. That's interesting. Just as to, it's a rough target. It's not like, a, you know, 71 is too much and 69 is too little. It's, it's just a, a target to give people a meaningful way to go, but also allow you, if you have the, the really exciting, you know, cultivated rose bush that doesn't have a whole lot of ecological value or some plant, uh, some hosta or something that you particularly like and functions well in your landscape, there's still room for that. There's still room to keep the ginkgo, the state champion ginkgo in our collections. Can't, can't move the state champion ginkgo. Yeah, Don't yeah. Touch so the there, ginkgo. There's always room for that. But uh, I think this point was really driven home for me. We were lucky enough to have a UMass scholar I don't know if she's still at UMass. She was at the, uh, it was just pre-COVID, Desiree Narango. And uh, Dr. Narango is an ecologist that uh, her research really draws this connection, actually going back to birds, uh, like you were saying, um, oaks, which are a foundational uh, genus. So there's several species of, of oaks that we have around here, but collectively the oaks host, if I'm remembering the number correctly, 532 species of caterpillars. So oh, that's my not goodness. all insects. That's just the one, the caterpillar, the ones that becomes moss and, and butterflies. Who knew there were 532 species yes, of yeah. caterpillars? So just to speak of that, that diversity that's hidden in plain mm. sight, that, that it's available for those that slow down and, and look closely, it was a, it was a wonderful eye-popping number. Yeah. Uh, ginkgos, less than 10. Uh, Japanese Zelkova, which was brought in a tree. I'm not that fond. I hate to say I'm not fond of any tree, but it really doesn't have a great place in American landscape. When when Dutch elm disease started to wipe out our elms, this is an elm relative that thought might, it might be a suitable replacement. They host zero. Wow. Just a wow. shocking, stark contrast in the value 
Uh, to bring that in another uh, step further in the animal world, chickadees, my personal favorite bird. Chickadee. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it warms my heart to see them on like a 10 degree morning, just waking up and doing what they do and, and, and seeming to fight off the cold. Josh, well, tell your sister not to shoot the chickadees. Don't chickadee. shoot the chickadees. Uh, to raise a clutch of chickadees successfully. Um, as I'm saying this, I encourage our listeners to imagine how many caterpillars do you think it takes a baby chickadees? And this is a short period. There's only a couple of weeks going from egg hatch to, to fledglings. How many chickadees do you think it, or sorry, how many caterpillars, which are the main, they're the really high calorie and nutrient dense. How many do you think it takes? It takes six to 9,000 caterpillars to successfully raise a clutch. A parent group will collect like between just under 400 and just over 500 caterpillars a day. Oh my that's golly, just, just for one baby chickadee. That's and they're one so story about one beloved native species of bird that really highlights this connection. And there's countless others that we haven't explored, but I really appreciate that one because I think we all can feel a connection to Unbelievable. that. Unbelievable. Yeah. And what what has uh, come to me in this conversation, John, is you're... As a landscape curator, you're responsible for much more than just the plants and the trees, but for the insects, for the fungus, for all of these, this mm. network of living things that go into, into landscape. I can't believe that we're just about out of time. We've been talking with John Berryhill. John is the landscape curator at Smith College, responsible for the 127 amazing acres of the Arboretum in the outdoor uh, landscape. Um, John, before we go, anyone can visit Smith's Outdoor Gardens. Is yeah. that right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, we're open uh, well, seven days a week. The Outdoor Gardens are always open. The, the campus is accessible. And uh, the Lyman Plant House, the Glass House collections are open uh, seven days a week as well. And you know, a lot of folks know our chrysanthemum show is, is coming up uh, November 4th. will be the first day that's open and a great... Uh, Opening lecture from Professor Colin Hoag, who worked with my colleagues. Uh, so not, not this and, weekend, but next weekend, the yeah. Mum Show. Yeah. John, thank There's you so much for joining us and encourage our listeners to get out and visit the wondrous gardens at Smith. And thank you for the work that you do in, uh, in, in promoting biological diversity and on, on campus. Brian Adams with Science and Sensibility. Thank you for being the stellar host that you are. I'm Josh Silver in for Bill and Buzz and we will be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. More than 2,000 employees for MJM Springfield will receive back pay after the Attorney General's office found the casino guilty of labor law violations. MGM Springfield will have to pay more than $6.8 million in back wages and fines to the state for infractions that occurred during the casino's first year and a half in operation. According to the Attorney General's office, MGM management failed to pay overtime wages, delayed payments, did not provide paid sick time, withheld tips, and did not pay minimum wage to tipped employees. Employees began filing complaints with the Attorney General's office in October 2018, just weeks after MGM Springfield opened, and the results of the investigation were made public this week. UMass Amherst students protested inside a campus administration building yesterday to support Palestinians under siege in Gaza. They called on Chancellor Javier Reyes and the campus administration to cut ties with the weapons manufacturer Raytheon. 
and condemn violence by Israel against Palestinians. Raytheon was one of the top six employers for UMass students who graduated from the class of 2021. Student groups including the Arab Cultural Association, the Black Student Union, Center for Education Policy and Advocacy, and Students for Justice in Palestine organized the sit-in. Multiple people at the Red Rock Plaza in Southampton were taken to the hospital on Wednesday after inhaling carbon monoxide. Emergency responders were first called to the scene for what was originally thought to be sickness caused by fumes from epoxy, but first responders found that it was instead the potentially dangerous gas coming from a propane heater. You cannot see, smell, or taste carbon monoxide, but symptoms of exposure include headaches, dizziness, vomiting, chest pain, and confusion. No injuries were reported, but at least three people were taken to Bay State Medical Center with more severe symptoms. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. Finding great candidates to hire can be like, well, trying to find a needle in a haystack. Sure, you can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope the right person comes along, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ziprecruiter.com free. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. Its powerful technology identifies people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. You get qualified candidates fast. So while other companies might deliver a lot of hay, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for. The needle in the haystack. Four out of five employers who post a job in ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free. ZipRecruiter.com slash free. And we're back, Josh Silver in for Buzz and Bill with a, a great segment that we call All That Jazz with Ruth Griggs, who's going to be running the mic. She is a famous local producer and organizer of the Northampton Jazz Festival, knows all things jazz, all that jazz. And oh, but I have a guest here with me that knows so much more about you, all that jazz. Have? What do you got? So um, my friend and colleague, Paul Arslanian, who is, is not, not unfamiliar to the airwaves of, of the WHMP listener, but he is back in the studio with me to talk about just what he's up to, because he's always up to a lot when it comes to jazz. So welcome, Paul. 
Thank you. Yeah. And hello, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good to have you back. Um, Paul and I are, are, I think we fully recovered from the 2023 Northampton Jazz Festival, which was at the beginning of the month. Um, But we're, we're still kind of basking in the glow of some of those performances and um, the hard work that we did to, to pull it off. Um, what was it like for you, Paul? Uh, it was hard work. <laughs> well, <laughs> this year I ended up, because we had a, an extra venue and we had so many sound people needs, sound engineer needs, that I ended up doing sound in Pulaski Park all day. So unfortunately, I didn't get to hear any of the other guests except for the ones that were in the park but uh, we lucked out. The rain stopped right on cue at 11 o'clock a.m. And uh, so it was, it was a beautiful day, and I had a lot of good feedback from the festival. And, and of course, I did get to see the Academy show that right. night. The uh, Max Roach Max Centennial. Roach thing, and that, yeah. was, that was another packed house. So yeah. uh, that was really Yeah, it seems like <laughs> people know to come out for the Northampton Jazz Festival. Yeah, and, yeah. and thank you for all that you do to, to make it happen. And Paul is one of our longest standing you know, board members and, and producers for the Jazz Festival, starting back in like 2013 or, or 14, something like that. Know, when it was yeah. behind thorns. So yeah. like going on 10 years. Yeah. So thank you for mm-hmm. all of this because we are of all volunteer board. Um, the 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 other thing that Paul does in in uh, aside from you know kind of producing and running um, a lot of music for the jazz festival is he also initiated and is still running. And this is we're now in our fifth year the jazz artists in the schools program, uh, which is um, in affiliation with the Northampton Public Schools, specifically uh, Northampton High School and JFK. And if you could just tell us a little bit about that program for some of our listeners that may not know that that you send in um, musicians into the schools to help clinic with the students. Yes, well, we got this idea back... I'm not 2018. Sure, 2018, because uh, I, I run the Northampton Jazz Workshop as well. And every Tuesday, uh, at least back then, we were at the uh, City Sports Grill at the bowling alley, I would bring in uh, pretty well-known, very well-known guests from New York, guest artists to play with my trio. And uh, we somehow came up with the idea that maybe because of the bands were playing at uh, JFK Middle School and the Northampton High School, they were rehearsing on Monday nights. Occasionally, we would bring in one of those uh, guest artists, saxophonists or, or, or trumpet players usually, and have them teach a master class and do a concert for the school and stuff with my trio. And uh, we called it the Jazz Artist in the Schools program. And we uh, talked, I think it was actually Willie Hill, uh, that a, a year before Willie that, Hill is the former executive director of the Fine Arts Center yes. and a beloved, beloved and jazz fan. I asked him, how do we get funding, for, you know, how do we get this in the schools? And he said, well, you need an inside person um, so I went to talk to uh, that, the then music director of, uh, at JFK, the band director. That was, um, oh my God. Claire Ann Williams. Claire Ann Williams, thank you, who just who's... retired. Um, and she thought it was a great idea, so we brought that to uh, the, the board of uh, the Jazz Festival, had a fundraiser. Uh, well, concert. we yeah, we we actually um, approached our friend Alan Davis, who's one right. of our advisors and is a longtime um, jazz supporter and player. And he, with his um, Davis Financial Group, put up 
um, the initial funding to make it happen at JFK, and then he's um, pledged every year um, to keep it going. And now we've brought in Greenfield Savings Bank um, as our second funder for the JFK program. So it's 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 just marching along beautifully. And there's a new band director now, right? Uh, there's a new band director. She's actually uh, comes from a, a local family. She used to live here, Shelby Serio. Very familiar name to all of us. And she's actually a jazz trombonist as well. Good for her. So she's very interested in this. And we did our first event with her uh, Monday night, this last Monday. Um, Three of us, uh, Richie Barchet on drums, George Kay on bass, and and myself on piano, uh, went and coached their rhythm section, their drummers and their uh, bass players and uh, pianists. They have like three or four of each of them. (laughs) And, that's uh, a we, good we, number. We, that's a nice a band. Well, actually, they only have one bass player, but uh, they have four or five pianists and two, three drummers. And this is all middle school, so this, this is, is six, school, through yeah. six through eight. eight. Yeah. And it was a wonderful experience. We had them uh, singing, uh, trying to learn m- melodies by ear, improvising with singing and clapping, and then playing uh, some of the songs that they're working on. And it was, it was good, and she was very excited. I think it's going to be a good partnership going forward. That's, that's wonderful. And then we also have the Northampton High School. Uh, a year after we started JFK, uh, they got a new band director at uh, the Northampton High School. This was back in 2019, maybe. Paul Kinsman, who's really energetic and done, doing a great job. He's expanded that program. It went from having no, no jazz band at all right. for many years to Paul coming in, and he's just kind of scrapped his way with, I think, support by you to bring validity and a level of impo- educational value and importance to the program so that now mm-hmm. it's, it's integrated into the curriculum which is, I think, the first time this year it's been fully integrated, and it's he's really accomplished a lot. Yeah. It's it's a wonderful because part of the mission of the jazz festival, and I think you could say part of the mission of every jazz player in the universe today is to keep jazz alive in the younger generations. Um, you know, there's that horrible adage of jazz is dead, and and that's just such garbage, right. as Emmett right. Cohen said to us last right. last Thursday, and I think. This kind of program that you're doing is is just evidence that, you know, it, it is growing and that there are young students that are very, very interested in jazz and being taught by masters, which is yeah, magnificent. Yeah, that's, that, that's the tradition. It's funny. Uh, when you're a young musician, you, you give a lot of credit to your elders, you know, like I'm, I'm walking on their shoulders or something like that. And then when you get older as a musician, you have a tendency to want to pass on your stuff. So, so it, it's... It's a long It works tradition. both ways. Yeah. 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 It works both ways. And uh, so anyway, and that Northampton High School uh, program is, is w- really well funded because uh, it, it was initiated through a, a gifts in memory of Elliot Ross, a student who uh, was in both, both jazz bands, JFK and high school, who passed away six, seven years ago in, now. In 2019. 2019, At, at yeah. way too young of an age. Yeah. And... Uh, Paul Kinsman, the band director, was was his was his was, uh, music director. That's, so that's right. um, there's a lot of wonderful funding for this program to continue in perpetuity mm-hmm. at the high school from the Elliot Ross family and friends. Yep. Um, yep. So that's a wonderful thing. And then 
I'm looking at Paul's shirt. He has on the Northampton Jazz Festival 2023 um, long sleeve t-shirt, which is featuring art by a Northampton High School student, Jonah Johnson. And we have been wanting to, and finally achieved this year, a collaboration not only with the jazz and, and the music department, but now with the art department, where we ha collaborated with Zoe Sasson in particular, um, and we, uh, she put together a fabulous curriculum for the students and assignment this last spring to uh, create 12 by 12 uh, inch um, you know, artistic depictions of their interpretation of jazz. And um, how did you get involved with that with um, your jazz artists in the schools? We kind of did a collaboration. Yeah, uh, again, Paul Kinsman, the band director there, is uh, very energetic and uh, uh, enthusiastic, and he... Uh, I'm not sure exactly how this started, but uh, he collaborated with the artist, and this is actually through Maureen Scanlon, who is uh, our, our graphic artist that works... An advisor. An advisor right. with the festival. And um, uh, we did... They suggested, besides the curriculum that they had for listening to music and looking at other jazz art and reading about the history of jazz, uh, Paul suggested that we do a, a concert in the uh, auditorium and in, of course invite all the the, the student body but especially the, the the art students and we did a, a six-piece group uh, concert for them and uh, it was very inspiring for the kids I think. It was. It was wonderful to see students um, sketching their artwork while they wow. were listening to That's the jazz. Right. Yep. Um, and we're going we're gonna to wrap up that quick conversation and then talk about the Northampton Jazz Workshop, which you lead uh, in, another, in another few minutes when we come back from break. Sounds Thanks, good. Paul Erslanian. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday the Blue Heron? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. The Blue Heron, the restaurant in the grand old town hall building in the center of Sunderland. Good food, good service, an ever-changing menu, and a signature martini you'll come back for again and again. There's nothing quite like the Blue Heron. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. 
The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we're back. Josh Silver in for Buzz and Bill. We've got Ruth Griggs and All That Jazz, an awesome weekly segment. Ruth's guest is uh, is a local icon she, and reportedly knows more about jazz than Ruth, which is no small thing. He knows more about jazz than a lot of people and, and jazz musicians in the whole nine yards. Paul Erslanian is also a jazz pianist and a composer, a producer, a performer, and um, directs the Northampton Jazz Workshop, which is happening a little ironically, but pretty successfully in Amherst these days at the Drake. That's right. We have a, a, a long history. Uh, uh, it was a tangled web. I'm not sure how that word fits in there, but uh, we started off at the Green Street Cafe. Back in 2010. Very small operation. Maybe could fit 40, 40 people in there. But with the idea of presenting a, a different guest artist each week, with my trio of uh, John Fisher and George Kay and myself and, uh, and having a jam session. That was the most important part of it. And uh, that lasted for about a year and a half. And then Smith College... Uh, Can we back up for a second? Let, let's just talk about a jam session. What is a jam I, session? Because, you know, I think, you know, some people might not really know what a jam session is. Well, going back to that theory of uh, passing on what you know uh, from your elders to the youngers... Um, it's a, tr- a tradition in jazz, and before they had uh, music schools and, and lots of recordings, uh, young musicians would learn by getting on the bandstand and practice trying what they're hearing from other musicians. And so that's the way I, l- I learned. That's the way uh, George Kay learned. And, uh, bass player that plays player in the Green Street Trio. Green Street Trio. And John Fisher, we, we go to uh, jam sessions. Well, there wasn't any in the area. It's a very important part of the education, besides what you might learn in school. Um, the, the, the street version of it is, is really important. And uh, so it was very successful, and uh, the audience loved it. You know, they came and they packed the place. They couldn't, you know, there was no more room for anybody else. Some of the same people that were coming back in 2010 are still coming every time we play. So... Some of the audience members, the audience as well members. as as well as, as the well musicians. musicians, and a lot of the young musicians that came through are now uh, pretty famous uh, New York-based players that tour all over the world and and have you know massive careers of their own, much bigger than mine. <laughs> and it's also fun to watch. You know, we were talking about the jazz artists in the schools program at Northampton High School. Um, it's been really wonderful to see younger students that are from the high schools in the area, as well as the college students, come on t- into that jam. And then you see them, you know, three, four, five years later, they've graduated from music school, they're off with their career. Sometimes they come back to the jazz workshop just to just to say hi and, and greet everyone. And it's just, it's really magical to watch those kids grow and expand their music 
their music ability, their music knowledge. Yeah, and uh, one of the nicest things about it is they get to not only uh, listen to these these famous artists coming in, uh, but they get to meet them and sometimes even play with them. Towards the end of the evening, the, the guest artist will come up on the bandstand and I'll invite uh, a few of the uh, student musicians or even some of the adult musicians who are amateurs or just want to continue playing in their music uh, so they get a chance to really connect with some of these artists you know and they make uh, connections and they go to New York and study with them and maybe even get a job with them um, yeah because uh, music is all about communication on so many different levels and in jazz you you want to build your network um, you want to get to know these other musicians because I think a lot of jazz musicians have the same philosophy and value as you do, oh, yeah. and that is to pass on the tradition and to support any young player that wants to come up and play. I mean, I've seen that happen a little bit um, with some of the young players that, uh, that have gone from Northampton High School to the Hart School of Music in Connecticut. And you know, famous players like Steve Davis, the trombonist, will take, you know, these kids under their wing mm -hmm. and they learn so much just by that one-on-one -on -one interaction, which is a, a beautiful way to learn that a lot of, a lot of subjects don't have that kind of one-on-one -on -one interaction. So, right. so God bless you for doing it for 10 years and, um, and, and keeping, keeping music alive. So what, what are the, what are some of the musicians that you've got coming up to the workshop? Uh, well, we, we just had uh, a couple of very famous tenor saxophonists. Eric Alexander was two weeks, three weeks ago, and uh, two, last week we had uh, Abraham Burton, both from New York City. Um, I had never played with e either of them before, and they, they were wonderful, and they loved the, you know, the, the student musicians that were there and the audience. Our audience is always great when, during our concert set. Uh, we usually play for one hour before the jam session starts, and we, we play the music of the guest artists, whatever they want to play. And our audience is just quiet and uh, appreciative and big applause, you know, and, and the artists really like that, the visiting artists. Well, and I know some of those New York artists have said in the past, it's like, I can't even get this many people to show up for a gig on a Tuesday night in New York City let alone here in Western Massachusetts, and they're just, they're, they're stunned right. in a mm -hmm. wonderful way with how many people come out on a Tuesday night to, to listen to jazz. So coming up, we have, uh, and I, I, was, I try to present different uh, styles of music, different artists. So uh, in, on November 7th, we have Mike Robinowitz, who's a jazz bass bassoonist. Uh, Which is remarkable. And he plays in the Mingus Dynasty Band. He's, he's actually one of the founding members. A jazz what? <laughs> What is he? A jazz bassoonist? Jazz bassoon. Yeah, he plays bassoon. What is that? What is that? Um, it is a large double reed uh, instrument, woodwind instrument. It's probably about four feet long. It's got a sound in the bottom <laughs> range, and, uh, and it, it's really you know, uh, fantastic. Instrument. I just love it when Dan kind of shows his yeah, lack yeah, of yeah. some of his cultural you Oh, know, I like strengths. a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. It's that's like that's definitely very, one. It's a bassoon. Big, Everybody knows it's famous in, like, movies, like, you hear it all the time. I didn't know the name of that. I've heard that noise. If you had said that noise, I would have understood that. trombone. Yeah, there you go. Oh, there you go. He plays... But he plays really fast and really well, and, like, he plays the jazz standards, and he improvises on the bassoon. 
It's 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 actually a beautiful way to get to know that instrument better. You know, if you you know if you hear a bassoon at all, it's often you know in the context of a symphony or something like that. But to have it as a solo instrument is just crazy, and it's really beautiful because it has a wonderful tone. So yeah, you switch it up. You know how to yeah. switch it up. Who else is coming? Uh, Don Braden. Uh, the, he, he runs the Litchfield Jazz Festival, a great uh, tenor saxophonist. And flautist. And, and flautist, that's right. And then uh, after He's that... He's coming up in November, I November think, right? November 21st. I'm hoping to have him on the show. And then on uh, December 5th, we have Hendrik Merkins, who plays... Uh, he's one of the greatest uh, jazz harmonica players, and he plays vibraphone. Uh, he'll be playing both. He's an amazing character. He's German, and he plays this. Is this big, huge German guy, and he plays this tiny little harp into the microphone. You don't even see the thing because his hands are so big, and he plays the heck out of that thing. And then he switches to vibraphone. So it's like it's um, it's kind of a feast for your ears and for your eyes. And then we finish the year off with uh, a wonderful tap dancer that I got to work with in Boston. Uh, last summer, Sydney Burtis, and I try to feature a tap dancer at least once a year. Uh, and why tap? Why tap? Because it's a percussion instrument. It's a, it's traditional. A lot of jazz drumming came from early jazz drumming came from tap dancers, and many jazz drummers uh, were tap dancers as well. And you're a jazz drummer. Uh, well, right? Don't uh, you accompany? The, uh, the dance department at, at UMass Smith? Uh, no, I, I play piano mostly, piano and kunga drums. But uh, yes, very much related to that. Yeah. So it's well, going to be exciting. This, is, this has been great, Paul. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always wonderful to have you, and the time just flies by because we just, we just talk, talk, talk we about all things. We did a lot things, of talking, yes. All <laughs> things jazz, and, and, and especially for, for the young jazz players out there. So um, thank you again, and let's make sure that you get to the Northampton Jazz Workshop. You can, you can look at up on Facebook to see what the schedule is, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Okay, thank you. And a big thanks to Ruth Griggs with all that jazz. I've been Josh Silver in for Bill and Buzz. I don't think we missed them at all, did we, Dan? Uh, speak for yourself. All right. And everybody, have a great Thursday. That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community nonprofits. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station.